We want to wrap up our short series on the Ted Haggard debacle. And we asked a number of questions that confronted us with this disaster. But we got some other questions that we want to pick up on today. Namely, can a Christian struggle with sin in the way that Haggard has talked about struggling with sin all of his life while he's been in this prominent leadership role? And we asked the question, what does the church do with this issue of homosexuality? These and other questions today on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. Thanks for joining us. Adam Kalustian with John Sautel and Moses Jambazian. We're pastors in local United Reformed churches in Ontario, California, Pasadena, California, and Diamond Bar, California. Let me just throw out the question. You guys pick up the discussion from last time. We were all disgusted and saddened, um, angry in some ways about the fall of Ted Haggard. Though, of course, as we said last week, it isn't really surprising, unfortunately, to, uh, to us, but... One of the things that Haggard said, we read at the beginning of the last show, and that was that he had said that over the years, from time to time, he had experienced victory over this a particular sin that he was exposed to participating in. Times he would experience victory, but that at times he would lapse, and, and part of his life is so dark and disgusting that he can't even hardly believe himself that he participates in sin in these ways. My question is, can a true Christian struggle with sin in the way that he did? This is a very good question to ask, and of course the answer from Scripture is yes. If we say we have no sin, then we make God to be a liar. So obviously sin is something that we will struggle with prior to glory. Even as we grow in our sanctification, really we become aware of more sins in our life that still need to be tackled. So, I mean, we definitely feel sorry for anyone who is undergoing something so publicly. Obviously, it's better if this can be handled in a more quiet manner. But the reality is that sin is a reality in the life of all men in this world, regenerate and unregenerate alike. And to set yourself up as the moral guide for everyone else and to try to enforce this external righteousness as he has done is what's really come back to haunt him now, now that it's become very apparent that he has not met the standards that he's trying to impose on everyone else by force. So the answer to the question is, yes, we struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. What we need to do is be where God's grace is going to work in us. And that is, of course, under the preached word in a true church where the sacraments are rightly administered, where we're warned about our sin, and we're called to live lives of gratitude to God. Well, I would I would affirm everything that Moses said, and I'd take you one step even further, and that is, not only do Christians struggle with sin, but ministers struggle with sin. And I don't necessarily think the hypocrisy here with Haggard, for instance, is that he struggled with sin. Because ministers, if they were required to never struggle with sin in order to stand up in front of God's people and preach the Word of God, would never be able to preach. Because they all struggle uh, with sins to various, various or lesser or greater degrees. The issue here is the blatant hypocrisy involved in the man running around condemning homosexuality, running around putting his name behind ballot initiatives on his own state and other places, talking to White House and supposedly being a great Christian leader on the issue 
of, of being uh, opposed to same-sex marriages and then himself having the very same sin in his life. I think that's the thing that really is troublesome about this whole case is the blatant, willful deception and hypocrisy involved here. It's certainly what happens in generic evangelicalism today, the community churches, and most Bible-believing so-called denominations that exist, conservative denominations, just kind of enforces and really encourages this sort of hypocrisy. Very seldom will you find a church that takes sin very seriously. There's an old historic Protestant tradition where in worship services, every Sunday, right at the beginning of the worship service, the law of God is read. And the law of God is read not just as a guide to teach people how to live and what a political causes to support that reflect the law, but the law is read to expose the sin of everybody's that, everybody that is at the worship service. Now, many services today have completely jettisoned any reading of the law because what they're after is getting people excited and whooping up people into fulfilling their uh, felt needs and their practical needs when really sin is not taken seriously as if it doesn't exist in the life of the congregation. So this mentality is built up where this group of people really has convinced themselves that they're holy and different than everybody else. By the way, let me make a qualification here because I think it is important. When uh, Pastor Adam says that we have a a Protestant tradition of confessing our sins at the outset of the worship service in response to uh, the preaching uh, or rather the reading of God's law— Let's not equate this, on the other hand, to the contemporary trendy idea of the pastor getting up and being Mr. Utterly Transparent. Okay, I don't want to know about all of your little particular vices and struggles and how you can make those sound cute and funny so that you can... <laughs> I, yeah. was, I was g- getting into it with my wife last night. Ha, 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 boy. Right. She, she can really get ornery, and I can really, you know, get a little stubborn back. Ha, ha, ha. I got just a, like I you. I got <laughs> a little temper tantrum, right? I, don't, don't try to relate with uh, Joe Sixpack in the pew and uh, get down with him, you know, and... T- Really? No. Yeah, I see a hot woman walking by just like the rest of you. Ha 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 ha. We're talking Boy, that's about a test for Satan's testing me. Ha ha ha. A general confession of sin with humility, with sorrow, and with true repentance. That's the kind of openness that we're talking about here. That's right. When we read the law of God in the churches, we are considering that the God who made us demands that we conform to his laws, demands that we reflect his holiness the laws which are a reflection themselves of his holy character, and that is a sobering reality, and it puts everybody in their place right at the beginning. It reminds us that worship is about God and not about us. And so what you need to do, instead of trying to find ways of mitigating your sins and trying to find excuses for why you sin the way you do, rather you need to simply confront the reality. I have sinned against God's law, and therefore I must, in the presence of God, confess my sins to him, There's not something that you go around telling everybody else, comparing sins, who's worse, who's been saved from something deeper and darker. No, you confess your sins to God, and then you long and you wait to hear the gospel to again be reminded of how gracious God was to send his only begotten son to die for your sins. And unfortunately, what we've done now is we've psychologized everything to the point that Okay, sure, you do this sin. Well, here was all the things in your background that led up to it. And here's all the mitigating circumstances. And here's why you shouldn't feel so bad because you've done these other good things. No, confess the sin as what it is. Something that shows that you will go to hell. It's like, know that it's actually demonstrating your fallen state. That's right. One of the problems with 
churches in general is that the people will look at other people's sins, and it's certainly possible with this Haggard case too. They'll look at the fall of Haggard and say, well, thank God I'm not like him. And that may be true in a sense. You know, we as sanctified Christians will be thankful when God makes strides by his grace in our lives, by the power of the Spirit to sanctify us. But we know that by nature we are sinful. And as we began the show last week, we remind ourselves again today that the fall of Haggard is an occasion for us to take a look at our own lives and to put to death the old habits and the sins that cling to us and to seek by the power of the Spirit not to grieve that Spirit, but to go forward in thankful obedience. But, you know, there's, a, there's an opposite a temptation, too, in this case that I don't want us to miss. Because when we ask the question about Haggard and say, well, now can a Christian, a true Christian, struggle with sin? We say, well, of course. I don't want us to miss, okay, maybe the other side of the coin, which is that the kind of sin that Ted Haggard was participating in and I'm not just talking about because he was a minister and he was on the forefront of the crusade against you know, homosexual marriage or whatever in the culture. But the sin of homosexuality itself, we should not downplay that as if it's a sin like unto other all sins. I mean, it seems pretty clear to us in the scripture that homosexual behavior is a radical form of depravity. Yeah, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then he goes on to say, the manifestation of this giving over is to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those which are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Now, depending on on how far you take this passage, at least what the Apostle Paul is saying is that homosexuality, whether it's between man uh, and a man and a man or a woman and a woman, is 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 a notoriously gross form of a violation of God's standards. I mean that that seems to be obvious to me based on the fact that he chooses the Apostle Paul does by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He chooses to display or to talk about the fall of mankind primarily by using the most disgusting, contrary to nature sin that's available. I mean, you know Romans chapter 1. Later on in the passage, he talks about other kinds of sin that humanity has been given over to. But why does Paul choose this first? Well, he chooses it because it is a particularly clear expression of a rebellion against everything that God has made man to be. Every way in which he has designed the creation Beautiful uh, monogamy in in marriage, sexual pleasure between a wife and her husband. What does man do? Well, the most disgusting thing that he does is throw that away altogether and pour out his sexual lusts with someone of the common sex. This is a vile and a disgusting sin, and we cannot speak out strongly enough against it. Now, somebody's going to say, well, okay, fine, but... Doesn't Paul add to that list at the end of the passage covetousness? So you're saying here that Paul is isolating homosexuality as some great sin, and then he goes on to say, yeah, but the manifestation of evil is also evident in covetousness and maliciousness. Well, look, there is a difference. First of all, the Apostle Paul says that homosexuality is a mark of God handing somebody over to a reprobate mind. But he also qualifies this sin in a different way as over against the others by saying it's against nature, contrary to nature, which he does not say of these others. 
Uh, many of these other sins are down here have to do with self-promotion or there's other selfish explanations, let's say, for these kinds of sins that don't necessarily make it in the same way against nature as is homosexuality. So Paul sets it off here. Now, we may have some disagreement about this, but as I see it, there's something very distinctly scandalous and gross about this sin that, that God's Word certainly does point out. Right. Well, and right, as Pastor John said, or alluded to, we've had some discussion on this passage in preparation for the show, and, and we could just be transparent to you and say that we may not agree on all of the uh, application of the details of this passage to the questions that we're talking about, but but I can also at least affirm that of all of the sins that Paul lists, clearly the homosexuality is seen as a, a massively greater degree of depravity and contrary to nature than the other sins. I mean, I tend to see this whole list kind of on a sliding scale, and Paul deliberately chooses the most vile thing on the scale of human depravity, homosexuality, precisely because it is a greater degree than than the rest of these sins. Now, it's all sin. We're all by nature uh, prone to sin. Only reason somebody doesn't sin one way and the other is by the common grace of God, even if they're not saved. But I don't think anybody can argue that homosexuality in the Apostle Paul's mind, by the power of the Spirit, is very, very depraved. Okay, so given that, given the truth that homosexuality at least is one of the most radical expressions of human depravity, it's way up on the scale of degree, at least, if not, as uh, Pastor John is sort of arguing, in a different category altogether. What do we think of Haggard or anybody who professes to be a Christian who, say, indulges in homosexual behavior over the period of his professing Christian life. I mean, he's talking about, look, I've had periods of victory, but what that means is that intermittently along the way, he finds himself participating, indulging his homosexual lusts. Well, one danger is that when we as Christians start budgeting our time for sin, it's like, all right, you know what, I will go so many months without it, but every once in a while I just need my sinful release, whatever my particular sin happens to be, and you know, if I reduce it down from, you know, 100 times a year to, say, 35 times a year, then God should be pleased with me. It's like, well, I can tell you, you know, we're certainly happy that you are not sinning those additional 65 times, but the reality still remains. You are in sin, and there's no excuse that's acceptable for any of us to sin. And therefore, we as ministers also, every Lord's Day, confess our sins before God. But in particular, dealing with Haggard's statements that he's had periods of victory and struggle and things like that, we really do wonder, what is it that he's talking about? Because this is, again, a very serious sin. In our church order, we actually talk about certain sins that are so gross that it actually requires ministers to be removed or to step down. And this is, again, something that I don't think is being taken seriously enough. We're Again, we are happy his church did remove him once this became public, but what was he trying to do? What kind of excuse is he making? And is it really possible to say, oh, I'm a Christian, but every once in a while, like, I have periods of victory with hatred, but, you know, about every two, three years, I do wind up killing somebody, you know, but I should still, you know, I'm still going to go on being a Christian, and, you know, next few years I'll be fine, but I'll kill someone again in 2009. I don't think we'd find that acceptable in any way. Okay, but let me ask it. Let me let me just put my finger right on the question, right on the rub. The, the question is, can a person be a true Christian and have periodic 
indulgences with homosexuality? That's the question that I want us to try and answer. What I believe Scripture is teaching is that a person will struggle with sins all the days of his life. It's just not going to go away until we are finally glorified. In other words, we are taken from this life into heaven above. To say that we struggle means that we have the temptations, that we are fighting the urges, we're constantly coming before God and confessing that our thoughts are not his thoughts and we are not perfectly confirmed to his will. But to act on those things, I guess that's really the question that it comes down to me is, is it right to say that, well, I have a struggle with it, meaning I have temptations that I must fight, or to say that I have a struggle with it and, yes, occasion I give in to the temptations and engage in homosexual acts? I would say that you you really are, you know, pressing your luck and to some degree playing games with God's word. If you are constantly consumed by this, then you're obviously not focusing your thoughts on God. In other words, you're not in a God-centered universe. You're in a universe where you are the center and your lusts are dominating and you can't get beyond that to love others, to help others, to worship God in spirit and in truth. I would say that there would be serious questions as to whether or not such a person is a believer. Okay, but I, I, if I understand your question correctly, you, you, you're envisioning one of two situ- situations. First of all, professing Christian who says, yeah, I have this uh, deep, dark impulse within me that uh, has urges for homosexual relations, right? Uh, whether that be a physical acting out on those urges or just has those internal urges. Is that, that's yeah, kind of what you're Yeah, it could be for various reasons, right? People trace um, the lack of development of a proper emotional connection to their father, You're just et cetera, asking the right? question whether Christians can, can have that. And I, I think, you know, obviously we would probably all agree and say, no, you're, you're not going to sit here and say that Christians act out on these impulses and, and go indulge in homosexual... Uh, sexual behavior, you know, every two, three years or where they fall off the wagon and they come back. As, as, a, as a general practice, no. I think we'd all be in agreement that, no, that, that's not acceptable. Right, Christians aren't going to do that. That's a homosexual lifestyle. And listen, we're, we're willing to say that that's different in the category of homosexuality precisely because of the radical nature of its depravity in Paul's mind. All right, I want you to see the difference. I mean, I'm trying to think of a different example, maybe, uh, I don't know, what's a quote-unquote lesser sin, right? Gossip, okay? So, you know, you're surrounded with people all the time and whatever. Unfortunately, this is always a dynamic in the church, too. And maybe once in a, on a rare occasion, you say a little more than you should have said, right, as a Christian person. Well, now, if you're doing that ceaselessly, and when you're confronted in that, you don't repent, then I would have the same concern about your true faith, too. And the elders of a church presumably would take disciplinary action against you. But that's a lot less than homosexuality, okay? The radical nature, the radical degree of depravity that's present with the homosexuality seems to me that if you have a person who is indulging his homosexual lust over a long period of time, that the pastors and elders would have no reason visibly to say that this person is a Christian. All right, but let's take it out of that sphere, okay? We've already answered. We don't agree that somebody's going to sit there and lapse back into the actual behavior itself, but I mean— uh, what about people who may, may confide in you, as, you know, privately say, hey, you know what? Um, and this wouldn't even have to necessarily be you know, from a congregational member to a pastor. It may simply be uh, one Christian brother to the other, let's say. They say, you know what? I, I struggle with these urges and these temptations. I mean, is that something that we would say is something that a Christian would do? Would they struggle with the urge 
to have homosexual relations with somebody. And my answer to that would be, I can envision a situation where that's possible. However, you ought to be alarmed if that is you. Alarmed. Because there are some things which are more disgusting and vile than others. Homosexuality is one of them. I mean, I am not at the point where I would tell somebody who confided in me or encourage the elders to tell someone who confided in them or they became aware of that if they were struggling with the temptation toward homosexual activity and were resisting the temptation and putting it to death and maybe seeking counseling to address some of the root, uh, contrary to nature, problems that, that caused it to arise, that they are outside of the kingdom of God. However, if this is something that plagues your life, I would expect that as a Christian, by the power of the Spirit, you should be able to see in your life uh, either either a lessening of, of these things, if all things else are equal, uh, or certainly a, a triumphant uh, resisting of the temptations that pop up from time to time. Part of the problem that I think we have is that churches, which are like-minded with us in their quick desire not to look at others and judge them when they themselves are sinful, they they have given in to sort of the cultural interests with this homosexual group, and they get sort of special treatment, like they're the martyrs because they have to struggle with the temptation of homosexuality. The opposite of that is not condemning them to hell because you're better than they are. The opposite of that is speaking to them seriously about the sin and explaining to them from the Scripture really how depraved this is and how critical it is that we put to death anything to do with homosexual inclinations or temptations and certainly indulgences in our life. Now, certainly, it's probably obvious to you, as um, confident as we always are in our assertions, you can hear us hedging a little bit around this issue. I think we're we're willing to admit that. Partly because it is so important. I mean, homosexuality and things like the fall of Ted Haggard, in, having involved himself in forms of sexuality, homosexuality, make us all the more sensitive to the importance of speaking the truth to the culture about what we're going through, about dealing with the, the questions of homosexuality in the churches. It leads me to a broader question that I want to ask is, look— given that it seems like in our culture there's a movement toward the broader acceptance of homosexuality as a normal lifestyle, not necessarily, obviously, in conservative Bible-believing churches, but in the broader culture, what is a church supposed to do? How should the church approach a culture that is increasingly accepting homosexuality as a normal lifestyle? And, by the way, condemning anybody who would speak out against it as hate speech, just like you would speak against another race, you're speaking against another race when you criticize homosexuality. Well, I have mixed thoughts about this because obviously um, one of the things that really irks me about this issue is the two different ways in which church people can come across on this. Number one, their rhetoric can be so loud and bellicose and overblown that no homosexual would ever come to their church. And I mean non-Christian homosexual would never darken the door of the church because they're afraid they're going to get lynched. And I don't want the church's rhetoric to be that way because we want to welcome non-Christian homosexuals to come to sit under uh, the preaching of God's Word. I want to make that very clear. Uh, I have no problems with inviting 
homosexuals to church. I have done that, and I would continue to do so, present the opportunity, because there's no other place on earth where they can go to get relief from this oppressive sin that they're involved with. So we do need to be very careful on the kind of rhetoric that we use to talk about this. On the other hand, on the other hand, what annoys me about the way churches deal with that today? On one hand, you have the group over here that are are loud and boisterous, and on, and then you have these people who are coddling of this and making to be sort of chic and up up with the culture and show how sensitive they are and everything. Uh, they they treat it like it's an an illness or something. They have special ministries and and a deeper sensitivity and compassion about this sin than they do with others. And and that's just completely, to me, it seems to be totally unbiblical. You don't get to choose your flavor. God says everybody's a sinner. And the fact is the church seems to be calling sinners to repentance. And stop being trying to be so uh, cutting edge and cool and down with the culture and hip and pretending like you really have your finger on the pulse of the problems of today. And so we have a homosexual outreach ministry. No, just have a ministry to sinners, okay? Uh, so I, I, this is what bugs me about it. Maybe you guys are in a different boat than I am. No, I think we're pretty much in the very same boat. And the other problem is this idea of how is the church going to confront culture as if this is our primary ministry is to keep the United States or the North American Anglo-Saxon cultures on the right road. Since when has the kingdoms of this world been the kingdom of our Lord? It will not happen until the last day. What we need to do is remember what is the mandate of the church, which is preaching the gospel to sinners for reconciliation with God. That is our duty. How the culture goes is really not that relevant. I mean, I know some people are going to take that in a radical way and say, I don't care about what happens. No, I'm not saying that. I live in this nation. My child is growing up in this nation. That's not it. The issue is we as the church have a very limited and very important work to do, which is preaching the gospel. And the fact that the culture is sinning in this way or that way, it's going to do that. It's always going to have a new sin. It's always going to be promoting something else. And the number one thing it promotes is the suppression of the truth of God and unrighteousness. The fact that it's doing it in this way or that way isn't the relevant thing. We need to go back to preach the cross every single time. So how should we confront this in a culture that's now trying to embrace it? Same way that we confront the culture with its radical denial of the Trinitarian God. The same way we confront culture with its denial of Christ as the Redeemer. We preach that truth. And then we remind people of it. And then we teach our children the truth. That is how we do it. I want us to think about how we talk to people, whether they be part of the homosexual community or not. People that accept homosexuality as normal, who don't agree with the Bible. We've talked before in our shows about politics how stupid it is for Christians to use the Bible as a political platform one reason being that obviously the people that they're trying to persuade don't believe the Bible is the standard for morality. So, but maybe, I don't know, John, help us say, how do you talk to your neighbor who doesn't believe that homosexuality is sinful, whether they're, you know, gay or not gay? How do you talk to them to, to show them that, look, they're wrong. Homosexuality See, is sinful and not I challenge unnatural. that. I really don't believe that if you went and randomly uh, just surveyed, you know, people in your neighborhood or whatever, that they would say, oh, it's not sinful. Maybe they would refrain from using sinful, but I think most people have an intuitive sense about this, and they say it's certainly different. 
but but one reason why we're forced into you know qualifying all of our words, coddling uh, this as some sort of special problem, is because society at large is pushing this uh, politically correct agenda that. Oh, these people are not different. They're just born this way or something. They're placing it in a category that makes them thoroughly insulated from all kinds of criticism. That's silly. We don't say that about other positions in life. Uh, People are free to take opinions on a whole range of issues in our society. But when it comes down to certain hot-button issues like this, we're all of a sudden supposed to be all sensitive and guarding our speech and, and not saying what we think about it. I think that's what I would say is stop trying to treat this as if uh, this is some extraordinary issue. It, it, it's not. It's a problem, and you're you're on track when you have an intuitive sense about this. There's something just very plain wrong about it. When you see that the parts don't fit, you ought to have a problem with it. Yeah, I I think that's interesting, John, because you you're kind of pointing out that look by common grace, people who hate God and reject His will and will not conform to the image of Christ resist the their own sins being exposed by the law of God and fleeing to Christ. Many of them, and I guess you're arguing the majority of them, at least in our culture, in spite of what a particular uh, powerful lobby is trying to promote, most of them would would agree that homosexuality is at least strange and different. And what I think is interesting, I mean, I would would commend to you, is to think about some of the language that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 1 when he talks about homosexuality. You know that term, contrary to nature? He doesn't make that up out of the blue. He's, and many scholars have made a good argument on this case, he's drawing on ethical philosophers that he is familiar with who are not Christians, but agree that homosexuality is wrong precisely because, as John said, the parts don't fit. And I think this is a very meaningful way to address people who don't share a biblical morality on this issue, as we would do with abortion. You know, people say, well, abortion's good. Wait a minute now. Hold on. There is a human being in that womb, and you believe that I don't have a right to kill you. You should not believe that anybody has a right to kill that human being that's developing in the womb. In the same way, look, homosexuality is contrary to nature. You know it is. Well, up to, let's say, even 20, 30 years ago, it was considered a mental illness. I mean, people in the psychiatric community recognize this, and the military was recognized as a as an abnormality and made you subject, or still does to this day, to being disciplined out of the military. I think you ask what can, can, can Christians do to contribute to this debate? And on this, and like so many other things, that what we could contribute in a very... Uh, positive and helpful, helpful way to the community at large is is free people up to speak honestly. Christians ought to be the first ones out on the forefront of the of the uh, battle for free speech in our communities, in, in in the universities, in our neighborhoods, wherever schoolrooms. We should promote freedom of speech, and this, I think this is a freedom of speech issue: freedom to talk about it openly and honestly for how it is, instead of being stigmatized and labeled as a as a nut, kook, crazy person because you're willing enough to you're 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 honest enough to say, hey, there's something wrong with this. The parts don't fit. So the fall of uh, Ted Haggard, the Ted Haggard debacle, has caused us to ask face some uh, very difficult questions, very uncomfortable questions for uh, the Christian church. Particularly here we have talked around and talked to eventually the questions of can a Christian struggle with sin? Can a Christian struggle with the sin of homosexuality? How should the church uh, answer the homosexual question? Thanks for listening today to Sinners and Saints. 
Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.